Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 10 as we are in our Advent series going through the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to continue that study. If you're new to reading your Bible, by the way, if you need to use one of our pew Bibles, that's on page 243. 2 Samuel 10, page 243 in the pew Bible. As I said, if you're new to reading your Bibles, the big number is the chapter, the little number is the verse. That's not a footnote. Yeah, okay, so that's how that works. So when I say chapter 10, verse 1, look for the big number 10, and um, actually they don't have a verse 1, but verse 2 is a little first 2 there. Just a way, if you're a Christian, you're like, why are you bringing that up? Um, think about how odd the Bible is to most people, right? They, they don't know it's a chapter and verse division. So even something like that can be a sign of affection and love for someone who's not familiar with the Bible. Just little things like that, let them know you're not just living on the inside with other Christians, right? We're aware that there are other people out there. So if that's you and you're new to reading your Bible, that's how that works. I'm only going to read the first um, five verses, and I'll explain why that is. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? 2 Samuel chapter 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has David not sent his servants to search out the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Verse 5, When it was told David, he sent to meet them, For the men were greatly ashamed, and the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Larry and Steve. Larry and Steve were a couple of homeless men that I got to befriend when I was a pastor out at my last church in La Mirada. Both Larry and Steve lived out of their cars. Both Larry and Steve fell within the orbit. They came in the orbit of our local church community there on Imperial Highway in Santa Gertrudis. Like a lot of churches in that area, we had a lot of experience with people who were living in poverty, the homeless, and the occasional Romanian gypsies that came by. Larry and Steve's lives were on the exact same trajectory. Prolonged homelessness, really no family to speak of, um, living out of their cars. But one decision separated Larry and Steve as far as east is from the west. And that decision was that Larry embraced the chesed love of Christ he heard in the gospel. And Steve rejected it. And over the course of seven years of getting to know Larry and Steve, I could see the trajectory of the way their lives played out based on that one decision. Larry became a member of our church community. He was one of us. He dived in. He got involved. We actually set him up with a window washing business there so he could get some money for himself. He became our night security guard, which basically meant he got to sleep in his van in the back of our church parking lot and exchange. He would make sure sure all the doors were locked up after all of our events. He would plug in the ministry. He was a weekly participant in our church food bank that shared the gospel and fed nearly 100 families, including Larry, every week. Week. 
He was one of us. At watching Larry after those seven years, you could not see the ravages of homelessness in his life. Steve was a completely different story. Steve went from bad to worse. He refused any opportunity to work. He refused any opportunity to hear the gospel. Steve refused to let anyone speak into his life. Eventually, Steve lost his car through disrepair, and then he lost his mind. During the course of this time, I'd invite Steve into my office, and we'd share a meal. We'd talk. I'd get to know him. But as the years wore on, I would then see Steve shambling through our neighborhood half naked. It got to the point I had to permanently remove him from being on our property at all because I would find him hiding in the backfield, half naked, drinking himself into oblivion, cursing and yelling at people who were no longer there. Both same lives, but one decision that changed their trajectory drastically. I watched them for those seven years, and I saw how Larry chose to be Mephibosheth. He recognized he was lame, that he was from a defeated house, that he was a liability to the king. And when he had heard the message of the king, he threw himself upon his mercy, and the rest was blessed history. Steve chose the path of Hanun that we were introduced to here in 2 Samuel chapter 10. He did not simply just reject the message of the king, his chesed love. He mocked it to his eventual ruin. I don't know if you noticed and remember, but chapter 9 and chapter 10 begin in almost identical fashion, but they couldn't end more differently, could they? Look at chapter 9. It opens by it saying... And David wanted to show kindness to the house of Saul, whereas chapter 10 opens with it saying David wanted to show loyalty to the house of Nahash. And as I said last week in the translation, the same word behind loyalty and kindness is this word chesed. So the chapters begin identically the same, but how these two men responded could not be more different. Now, if I could just jump quickly to the Jesus part, because in some sense, this is a continuation of last week's message, so we built up to that. Receiving the rule of Christ in your life, submitting your life to his lordship, is the best news you could have, right? By, by comparison, rejecting the lordship of Christ, rejecting his rule in your life, it's the worst thing you could possibly do. That was true of the Ammonites. That was true of Steve. It's true of any of us here this morning. Now, if the whole point or the main point of chapter 10 is this kind of cautionary tale about rejecting the steadfast love of God, then why do we have all this kind of verses 6 through 19, which if you've read the chapter before, and again, I always encourage you at the bottom of our church bulletins, we typically put the verse, the chapters we're going to look at the next week so you can read ahead. If you had read that this week, you would have realized the same thing I realized. (laughs) This is chronologically very confusing. Right? Verses 1 through 5 make a lot of sense. They get to the point, and the rest took me about three or four hours to try to figure out what is going on in these verses. Well, that's because chapter 10 of 2 Samuel is a pivot point in the book. It is a, um, I was say a picture, but maybe summary uh, is a better word. A summary chapter that looks at both responses positively and negatively when people respond to the steadfast love of God at both the personal and national level. But it also sets the stage 
Unfortunately for David's eventual failure that we're going to see in chapters 11 and 12. But we'll look at that a little bit later. By the way, his failure in chapters 11 and 12 sets up the, 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 the action for the rest of the book from chapters 13 to 20. So, so chapter 10 is doing kind of a lot of work here. And as always, the life of King David is offering us a test case of, of how we interact with the steadfast love of God, the chesed of God. So last week we looked at Mephibosheth, wisely, humbly receiving it, and all the blessings that flowed from that. This morning we look at Hanun, foolishly, arrogantly rejecting it, and how that led to his own ruin and the ruin of his nation. So let's look at that first. The steadfast love of God being rejected. Now, as I said, twice in the opening verse, it's kind of showing us the connection of chapter 9, we see this word... Chesed appear, and it's, this time it's translated as loyalty. David wants to see, show loyalty to Nahash, the Ammonite king. Now, by the way, if you're looking around for where that happens, where was where's this relation happen? The Bible doesn't tell us that. We just have to know from extra biblical sources. Um, some of you Bible students recognize the name Nahash, the Ammonite king, because we were introduced to that man in particular way back in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And because we haven't studied the books back to back, let me kind of refresh your memory in in, in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, Nahash the Ammonite says, I'm going to take my men and besiege the city of Jabesh Gilead. And so Nahash shows up with his army on their kind of city gates and he says, submit to me or I'm going to slaughter you all. But when you submit to me, I'm going to gouge out all your right eyes so that you're always in servitude to me. And so the men of Jabesh Gilead say, okay, we will submit because we'd rather go half blind than lose all of our lives, but give us one opportunity to seek aid from our brothers and sisters. The, and at that time, um, Israel was just this loose confederacy of tribes, right? And so they send out asking for help, kind of thinking no one's going to show up. But keep in mind, this is right at the time of Saul, the rise of the monarchy. And Saul says, far be it from us to let this happen to a tribe of Israel or a city of Israel. And he says, all of Israel, if you don't show up to help us deliver Jabez Gilead, you're going to have to deal with me. And all Israel kind of goes, wow, we wanted a king and this is the guy. So let's rally and go for it. And so what happens is in 1 Samuel 11, in a very heroic, one of the few moments we see Saul in this glorious manner, delivers the city of Jabez Gilead and conquers Nahash the Ammonite. And so probably during David's fugitive period from the second half of 1 Samuel, you know the old proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Nahash probably went, oh, Saul doesn't like you either? Well, I don't like that guy either because of what he did to me, so I'm going to help you out. I'm be buddies with you, right? And so that's probably what happened. By the way, this is why when Saul dies in 1 Samuel 30 and um, the Philistines kind of desecrate his body, it's the men of Jabesh Gilead that risk life and limb to get the body of Saul and give it a proper burial because of that affection from back then. So at this point, though, David is still showing one to show loyalty, chesed, to the Ammonites who, generally speaking, were the enemies of Israel. That's the heart of this kind of king. Even though we were enemies, you were once kind to me, and I'm going to show this kindness back to you. And so when Nahash dies, this is a, a common diplomatic thing that we do even today when heads of state pass away. They send a delegation to give condolences of what's happening. And that's what we see in our passage here in 2 Samuel 10. But Nahash's son, Hanun, he treats this delegation shamefully. Because as common with young rulers, 
This guy lacks wisdom and common sense, and he doesn't know bad counsel when he hears it, and he shamefully treats the delegation from Israel. Now, to be clear, I don't want the Bible to seem flat to you, right? Um, Hanun probably had his reasons. His princess probably had his reasons. So imagine if... This iPad is kind of Israel. I know it's not quite the same shape, but down here, we got modern Egypt, you got modern Jordan, you got Syria, you got uh, Lebanon up here. In the biblical days, you still had Egypt down here, but then you would have uh, Moab, Edom, Ammon, and some other kind of Confederate kingdoms, Syria and Lebanon right there. So David had been able to take over Moab and Edom. I'll talk about that a little bit later. So they took over Moab and Edom and Amnon had reason to believe, wow, this King David, he's expanding his kingdom. He's just taking people over. He's sending these delegations. He's actually trying to spy us out because we're next on the block. So there was reason to think that by just looking at the events, but that wasn't David at all. I'll explain reason why he took over Moab and Edom, but there's a reason why Hanun was a little bit suspicious. But it's one thing to be suspicious, but it's another to do what he did. Shaves off half their beards, cuts their garments down the middle, and sends David's delegation back in disgrace. No doubt marching, him, marching these men through his own city to the jeering and mocking of all their citizens. This is a humiliating thing. Now, there are some of you here, you might be thinking, this just sounds like, yeah, it's like a college hazing. It's not the reason to go into full-on warfare like verses 6 through 19, right? So let me explain a little bit about what's happening here. Kind of like, um, I'm looking around for our first responders, making okay, kind of like some modern fire departments. Uh, in the ancient Near East, the more you had a beard, the more you were a man, Right? That, that, that your beard was an evidence of manliness. I said that first hour, and I realized all of our first responders were there, and they kind of were a little upset, but it's true. Right? So the bigger your beard, the more of a man you are. As a matter of fact, I've got this document from the ancient Assyrians, uh, Shamshi Adad, challenging his son. He says this, aren't you a man? Isn't there no beard on your chin? Right? So I guess I got a little bit of manliness going on here, but I said Tim's the manliest staff elder we have as a result. But having a beard was a sign of your prowess. So you were masculine, right? There was very few things as masculine as a full beard. Shaving off one's beard symbolically was robbing them of their manliness. Uh, that we, we don't think of them in that, that harsh, strong terms, but that's the way it was back then. And in some cases... As a sign of extreme grief and loss for a mourning for a friend, if someone passed away, you would shave off your whole beard to show how deeply you felt this loss. It was almost connected to your very identity as a man. That's how significant it was. Hanun shaves off half their beards. Kind of like mocking the fact that he doesn't believe that their show of sympathy is actually sincere at all. And he's going to mock them by just shaving off half their beards. So not only was their manliness mocked, their manliness was also exposed. Because he hacks off half of their garments. So this was an act of pure defiance, of disrespect, of, of disdain for the Israelites. As a matter of fact... It, it, Amon knew he made such a big stink. Look at verse 6 here. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah. 
So these actions that take place, Nahash dies, David wants to console the son of his former friend, and he responds disgraciously. This sets into a chain of events that ultimately lead to the tragic fall of King David in chapters 11 and 12. We'll get to that later, like I said. For the time being, though, we're at the highlight of 2 Samuel. We're seeing David, the Christ-like David, even in verse 7, caring for the integrity and the dignity of his men. He sends them to Jericho until their beards grow back so they don't have to endure any shame from their own people. Now, this is a large delegation of soldiers. So to have them kind of waiting a week or two to have their, make sure all their beard grows back in full, that's a big expense. And it's, it's leaving them a little bit with that many less soldiers. This is a very caring act of David to have, uh, you know, these, these, these men staying in Jericho. It's hard not to miss, just looking at those five verses, the contrast between, between Mephibosheth in chapter 9 and Hanun in chapter 10. The narrator wants us to see the contrast, not only because he's using the same words to link it, but we know because if you look at the parallel recording of these events in second, uh, excuse me, First Chronicles 18 and 19, the chronicler jumps from the events of 2 Samuel 8 and jumps right into the events of 2 Samuel 10. Doesn't even acknowledge the Mephibosheth scene. So we know in 2 Samuel, this author wants us to see the difference between Mephibosheth and Hanun and what's going on in David's response. Why? I think because of this. If you just have 2 Samuel chapter 9 and the steadfast love of God being just gushing out on Mephibosheth, we can, as individuals, maybe think that the love of God, and it happens a lot, is this kind of soft, sentimental thing. That's really good that a lame man needed that, and it was good for their life, but that's not something I really need. I can take or leave God's offer of mercy. That's just not something I need. I'm on my own. I got my stuff together. I don't need it. But chapter 10 serves as a corrective to that foolish thinking. Because it's a clear statement in 10 to refuse the mercy of the king, which is genuinely going out to all people, then is to ask for his wrath. We see that very clearly in what's happening here. In other words, this is not a king to toy with. Yes, he was gracious. Yes, he was kind. He poured out love, gushed upon Mephibosheth. But do not think for a second that he's some doddering old grandfather-like kind of guy who's a little not quite there and just friendly at everybody. No. This is a king to be feared. And yet, he is a powerhouse and full of mercy. What an unusual combination. I think the message of the New Testament to us is found in the way Paul thinks about it in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Listen to what Paul says. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul's saying, do not forget his kindness, his weakness. That would be a grave error. Friends, the only thing that matches the fierce compassion, goodness, mercy, and, and kindness of God is his fierce justice, wrath, and hatred of all evil. 
Psalm chapter 2, which is, by the way, a poetic commentary on 2 Samuel 8 and 2, puts it this way in verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Now, real quick, you're reading that, you go, well, it can't apply to me. I'm not a king. I'm not a ruler. But I, as I was reading this, I thought, hey, look, there's never been a time in the world's history that individuals like you and I had say-so over the destiny of our own lives, right? People have never had such autonomy. We are our own, our own rulers, captains of our destiny. This applies to us, Right? So be, be oh, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Friends, be Mephibosheth, be Frank, excuse me, be Larry. Don't be Hanun. Don't be Steve. And, and by the way, that decision to, be, to, to respond humbly or arrogantly to the steadfast love of God, it's not a one and done thing. To respond humbly to the Lord rather than cynically, to respond gratefully to the Lord rather than arrogantly is a decision you make every hour of every day, of every year, in every situation, in every relationship you have. How will you respond? Will you remember the steadfast love of God and his goodness and kindness to you, and you will respond in like? Or will you be cynical? Will you be arrogant? Will you... Trust his plans for you, or will you be suspicious of his plans and work your own designs? That's something every day, every moment, every relationship, we've got to be making that choice. The Christian life is not something you did several years ago and you go on autopilot. As Martin Luther said, every moment of every day is repentance and faith all the time. So, easy enough, right? Those few verses, easy enough. And I kind of thought about just ending it there. <laughs> but I know in this church, people often ask, well, yeah, that was great, but what about the rest of the chapter? Right? Well, what about these 14 verses in 6 through 19? So let's deal with those next. A couple of weeks ago, um, Lori and I and Anna were looking at some artwork at Buckingham Palace in London. Um, well, that sounds such like an elitist thing, yeah? I was looking at art at Buckingham Palace, um, but I was looking at art at Buckingham Palace. What can I say? Um, and there was this massive painting that caught my eye. I'd never seen it before, right? I'm not much of an art guy. It's called The Field of the Cloth of Gold. And in this massive painting, it's like the size of this entire thing. It's humongous. Um, it, it's, it's depicting the very short-lived and historical peace treaty between England and France in 1520. Um, in this painting, in this huge painting, Henry, the, Henry VIII appears no less than three times. Now, art historians say that this, the, the, the amazing thing about this kind of painting is that what the artist is doing is capturing all the events, the interactions, the feeling of the time, uh, all the celebration, all the meetings, all the jousting in just one painting. 
And so what you see is you have Henry VIII coming in to, to, the, to France with his 6,000 escorts here. And then way in the back up here, you have Henry VIII and Francois I of France embracing as they begin their peace negotiations. And then if you looked at it, you could see right up here. I know you can't see from where you're sitting, but if you look at the mere painting, there's Henry VIII there watching all the jousting. And then obviously there's all the feasting and celebrating and meetings taking place. So it's three weeks of life all jammed into one painting. And as I was watching this, looking at this painting and reading the information on it, I thought, wow, that's exactly in art form what we've been studying in 2 Samuel does in literary form. In some of these key chapters, chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 8, for example, you have the narrator pulling all kinds of events and vignettes and scenes of life, jumping into one kind of chapter, bringing the most historical weight and the most economy of words. I mean, the, the, the literature of the Bible, friends, is just simply brilliance. The amount of work that these guys can make one or two chapters carry. And so, some of you astute Bible readers, as you're reading this chapter, you might have read it and said, hey, chapter 10 sounds a lot like what I just read in chapter Eight, like especially verses 6 through 19 of chapter 10 sounds a lot like verses 3 to 12 of chapter 8. After all, even the same people are in it. Hadadezer is there, so are the Syrians and the men from Zobah. And if you read both chapters in one sitting, you're going to be very confused because chapter 8 paints this picture of decisive victory, man. I mean, it's like, it's a done deal. Israel's on top. Everyone's wiped out. And yet in chapter 10, all of these guys are back with their armies, and they're back at it again. And you're kind of like, well, Zoba, if you had all these other armies with you in the first place, why didn't you bring all of them the first time in chapter 8? You get a little bit confused. Well, the answer is simple. Because what's taking place, kind of like the field of the cloth of gold, is that the events of chapter 10, verse 6 through 19, are taking place inside of chapter 8, verses 3 through 12. The reason the narrator lays it out this way is because he wants to force the contrast between Mephibosheth and Hanun to receive or to reject God's chesed love, and at the same time, prepare us the reader for the second half of the book of 2 Samuel. In other words, chapter 8, it's kind of like the end of the, the first part. Everything's on the zenith. It provides us 10,000-foot overview of this period of time. And we have three statements that indicate this, right? Verse 6, verse 14, it says very clearly, um, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Twice it says that in chapter 8. And in chapter 8 it says, and David ruled Israel with justice and equity. This is a final picture of, man, how it doesn't get better than this. Chapters 9 through 12 then help us dive into some details, events, things that went on during this time period. And then chapters 13 to 20 describe the fallout from the tragedy of David's fall in chapter 11 and 12, and that's kind of the remainder of the book of 2 Samuel. Now, if you're a Bible student, you might be looking at your Bible and going, Second uh, Samuel doesn't end at chapter 20. It goes on for four more chapters. That's because those serve as appendices to the book of Samuel. We'll get to that as well. I'll explain that later when we're there. So here you have one chapter carrying the historical weight in an economy of words and narrative. 
Now, I do want to point out two verses of that section that's really important because, as I said, the author's trying to set us up to understand the rest of the book. Number one, or in these, six, these 14 verses, we have two battle scenes. The first, from verse 6 to 14, Israel, the Ammonites, and the Syrians go at it. And verse 14 explains something really important. So look at verse 14 of 2 Samuel 10. Verse 14, and when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. What's happening here is the author saying, look, the Ammonites, the battle against them has been left undone. It's unresolved. They kind of panic, go back into the city, and Joab stops the fight. Because what we see in chapter 12, at the very end of the, um, that, that two chapters, David and uh, Joab take care of the Ammonites. So verse 14 is saying, hey, this is left unresolved. It's going to be dealt with later. The second battle that we see recorded here, verses um, 15 to 19, it's now Israel against the Syrians. And the important verse there is verse 19. Look at verse 19. And when all the kings who were, were the servants of Hadiezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Why is that important? Because at the end of chapter 12, when David and Joab finally take care of the Ammonite situation, the reader who knows all these players is going, well, why didn't the Syrians come help them out? Well, they're telling us. The Syrians realize we cannot beat Israel. Something is fueling these guys, and we are going to lose. So Ammonites, you're on your own. So he's setting us up for the person who would read this would go, wait a minute, why didn't this happen? He's explaining. He's explaining what's taking place there. Now, that's, that's just stuff I want to build up so you can understand as we get into it. I'm going to start wrapping this up. 2 Samuel chapter 10 serves three purposes. Let's talk about the brilliance of the literature of the Bible. There's one chapter carrying so much into it. Number one, by use of direct, by direct parallel, the use of the word hesed is forcing us to see the blessings of receiving the steadfast love of God and the, the, the ruin that comes from rejecting the steadfast love of God. Secondly, as I said, it's providing the historical backdrop for the Israel-Ammonite war and the whole David and Bathsheba fiasco in chapters 11 and 12 and helping us understand chapters 13 to 20 the rest of the book. But it's also doing something very significant. Along with chapter 8, this chapter is showing us the expansion of the Davidic kingdom and thus the continued fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 15. Now, you can write this down. If you look at Genesis 15 and you write down all the, the names, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, the Amalekites, the Hittites, all that, that God said, these wicked people are in this land, and one day their land's going to be yours, and you map on to where Israel is at this time, it's all the same kind of property. Now, let me make this quick comment because I think some Christians are confused given the current events that's taking place with Israel and Hamas, and, and people are being kind of, they, they don't know history. And so they're thinking, well, Israel, maybe, are they really occupiers? Okay. So Genesis 15, 4,000 years ago, God tells Abraham, this land is your land. At the time of that, the, the land was populated by nomadic Bedouin groups 
uh, there would have been the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amalekites, those kind of people. So I suppose if anyone have a claim to the land, if the Amalekites were around, they'd have a legitimate claim. They're not around. Why? Because God said their wickedness has come into my nostrils and I cannot abide it. The things they have done, they need, the land needs to be cleansed. So Abraham, your people are going to take care of that. A thousand years later, in the monarchy of Saul, we started to see that actually happen. So from 4,000 years ago, God says, this land is your land. And 3,000 years after that, Saul starts to take the land. And even here in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 10, we see evidences of that. Now, to be clear, um, let me back up. David had already gotten Moab and Edom. I talked about that. And that's because when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt, they wanted to cross a very significant roadway. I'll talk about it in a little bit. And the king of Moab said, nope, you're not doing this. You guys are a filthy slave nation, undeserving of life. You're not touching my property. And they said, well, we'll even pay for the water our cattle drink. We'll pay for transportation. We just asked permission. And the king of Moab said, no, not only are you not allowed to be on my land, I'm going to obliterate you. And the Lord said, because you, Moab, cursed a vulnerable people and you chose to oppress them, one day those people will basically give you your comeuppance. And a thousand years later, when Israel became a monarchy, the Lord said, now take care of Moab and Edom for their wickedness. So David takes Moab and Edom, right? And I said, Hanun thought, hey, maybe he's going to try and take us over. In fact, of the matter, David probably said, look, now's an opportunity to build a relationship with Nahash's son, Hanun, and we can have an allegiance, and uh, this can be beneficial for all of us. But Hanun says, no, I reject that. And he mocks them and asks for basically warfare. And so David gives him what he asks. And in so doing, as you see in 2 Samuel 8 and 2 Samuel 10, all those vast kingdoms become vassal kingdoms. Moab, Edom, Jabus, uh, Amalekites, Ammonites, they all get defeated. Israel had won every conflict, and as victors, these kingdoms became subject to Israel, as surely as Israel would have become their subjects, if not worse, had they lost the conflict. And so the kingdom of God is expanding, not the way they would have liked, not the way David would, he wouldn't have wanted it this way, but that's what happened when Hanun said, I reject the steadfast love of God. God's plan is going to happen anyway. And so they won the land. But here's the thing that's interesting. I'm going to tie this into us, okay? But in doing this, two things that happened significantly historically. Israel is the only remaining military power in the region. All the other kingdoms are vassal states to Israel. Their armies have been decimated. Israel now absorbs them and protects them. But because this region, and even to this day, so, if you, so here's Israel, my hand, here's Jordan. There is some, a trade route that even in modern-day Jordan, Highway 35 and 5 runs along it. It's called the King's Highway, and it links northern Africa and brings through northern Africa all the trade. It links northern Africa all the way up to Mesopotamia and the Euphrates River. This trade route, the King's Highway, was so significant because of the constant trade and tolls that were paid. All the kingdoms in that area were now subject to Israel. Israel owned that entire region. So what happens is Israel becomes the military strong, uh, the only remaining military power, and the economic juggernaut of the region. Which is why Solomon had such extensive wealth, because there was no other kingdom except Israel overseeing the King's Highway. So Israel, because of these military exploits, because of this, that economically they flourish, here's the point. In other words, the success of Israel and the downfall of all these kingdoms illustrate at the macro level, the big level, 
the point of the Mephibosheth and Hanun comparison at the intimate personal level. We receive or reject the steadfast love of God to our renewal or our ruin. And that's what we're seeing here. A commentator said this. I want to close on this kind of point, wrap some things up here. He says this, David's kingdom is not a perfect, but a preliminary and principal form of Christ's kingdom. The kingdom pattern, however, is the same. Conflict precedes conquest. Both Old and New Testaments testify that on the whole, men and nations do not long to receive, but live to resist Christ's reign, and that he will establish his rule at the last, not by popular demand, but by armed might. Friends, the baby that comes to save us in the manger that we celebrate Christmas time will one day be a king on a white horse that comes to claim what is rightfully his. And as we have been studying this book of 2 Samuel, and we, we have been seeing all throughout, you can either face his fierce compassion and his goodness and his love and his graciousness, or you can face his fierce justice and wrath and hatred of all that is polluted and evil. The choice and the consequence is yours. And we have literally been seeing it played out time and time again. Now, let me just say this, especially because that last quote, that, can, that challenges our sensibilities that God's going to kick butt and take names after all. I don't know if I like that, right? And many people are uncomfortable with a God of wrath. They say, look, I, 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 I want to believe in a God of love. That's not, an angry God's not my God. And again, I think that's because we put God, we hold him to a standard that really doesn't make sense at all when intuitively we understand this principle in so many areas of life. Let me illustrate. If you were a coach, your kids, well, maybe not your kids' little league team, but say you're like a coach of a team of any kind of significance, high school, football, baseball, maybe even college sports, or you understand the point. How do you feel as a coach when your athletes, who they want to be champions, are eating junk food all the time, like McDonald's or whatever. They're, they're not practicing as hard as they should be. They're, 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 they're not getting good sleep. They're staying up all night watching YouTube and stupid videos and things, and they're just wrecks. How do you as a coach feel? What do you as a coach do? You kind of lay the hammer down. You say, no, 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 you're going to stop eating McDonald's. You're going to start eating broccoli, right? You're not going to be sleeping in. You're going to get up at 6, and you're going to practice, and you're going you're gonna to bring discipline to their lives because you want them to be the champions that they want to be but lack the discipline to follow through. You get my point. A second illustration, my dog Einstein happened this morning. He's a gorgeous Bernadoodle. But he's dumb as rocks, man. Um, he, and he literally eats rocks. I don't, he eats them and brings them to me. And so this morning, he's by the Christmas tree, and we have apple ornaments. He's, he's licking the, orn, the apple ornament. It doesn't even smell like an apple, Einstein. Right? And that's his name, Einstein, the irony of it, right? Like, Einstein, it doesn't smell like an apple. It doesn't taste like an apple. He's eaten four of them already. So there he is licking the thing. So I'm like, and then he bites into it. And so we go this back and forth. I'm like, Einstein, I'm like, I'm reliving it right now. I know you want this. And by the way, this is how we are all the time. Einstein, I know you want this. You think this is the real thing. You think this is nutritional and this is going to be good for you. And it's not. This is bad for you. And we go back and forth and back and forth. Would a loving pet owner just let him keep eating fake ornaments and rocks? No. And there comes a point I'm like, dude, if you don't let go of this, I'm going to you know, whack you, you know, because I love him. 
right? And I'd rather him feel my love tap than eat more rocks. Last illustration. (laughs) Parents, parents, you love your kids. And the level of the love you have for your child is in direct proportion to those, the hatred you will have to things that hurt your child. That's true. Whether it's bad influences, whether it's bad food, bad habits, bad character traits, and you will, you will risk even your relationship with that, young, that son or daughter because your love for them is even more than the... You, you value them more than even the relationship you have with them. I read this quote. I don't even know who it was, but it makes the point. The more a man loves his son, the more that man hates in his son the liar, the sloth, the deceiver. Guys, when God says, I want you to be a champion, you want to be a champion, but you're living like a loser, trust me. Let me take this from you. You think this is what's going to be good and enjoyable and give you life. You don't know. You're licking fake ornaments thinking that this is a feast. Let me take it from you. God's wrath, friends, his anger and hatred towards sin is an expression of his love. And we understand that in so many ways. And yet when it comes to God, we say all of a sudden, well, I don't want that. Then you don't want to be a champion. You don't want to flourish. And God says, I love you too much and I will stand in your way and I will let you hate me because I value your flourishing more than how I might feel you feel about me. And that's what the gospel message is constantly doing, challenging us. Not because he's a cosmic killjoy, but because he wants us to be champions. He wants us to flourish. You get the point. Last thing I'm going to say, and then we're done. Chapter 10 leaves us on a high note. We see the Hesed keeping David, the conquering king. That's a good thing. We're going to enjoy that. But it also sets us up for chapters 11 and 12. 8, 9, and 10. David is kind and loyal and victorious. In chapters 11 and 12, he throws kindness and loyalty out the window, and he's defeated by no one else but himself because of his actions. Here, David is driven by covenant obedience. There, he's driven by lustful disobedience. Here, David spares and he mourns life. There, he tramples and destroys life. What's my point? As great as David is, He's just like you and I. He needs to remember he is the Lord's Mephibosheth as much as you and I do. He may be the the king, but he still needs the king's mercy, and he needs to throw himself before that king to get mercy. The good news is we can receive the steadfast love of Christ. It's not a one-and-done thing. It's available to, to us every day, or you can reject it. I pray that you would receive it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it carries so much that it can actually be overwhelming sometimes. We thank you that we can read it and learn, and we see so clearly the the contrast between Mephibosheth and Hanun. And Lord, just like those athletes, just like my dogs, just like kids, sometimes we think the things we want are going to bring us life, and they bring us death. Lord, help us to trust you in that moment that you know better than us, that your plans prevail, that what you say is wisdom, and so often what we believe is folly. 
Just as, as Hanun, it could have been justified, his reaction, but yet in his sin, he overreacted, and it led to his ruin. Lord, we pray that we would not do the same, but that we would be like Mephibosheth, recognizing a gracious king stands before us, and we throw ourselves before your mercy, and we're delighted to hear you say, do not be afraid. Come eat at my table and be my son, be my daughter. Lord, I pray that we would know that every day of our lives, and we would act accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.